Hello, 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 everyone, and welcome back to the Know It All podcast. I'm your host, Riley Sue, and I am so excited to be joining y'all for another episode of the pod. Last week, we discussed the intense and true history of the Granite Mountain Speculator Mine Disaster, and that episode definitely had a bit more intensity to it. I can't think of a better word, but I loved how much storytelling I got to do, and I feel like it really just helped the story to come alive. I loved connecting with the history of that event and connecting with you guys about the events of June 8th, 1917. This week, though, we're going to lighten the mood a bit again because while we, of course, want to talk about facts and facts are not always the most, well, fun, (laughs) I do like to try and keep track of the tone or like mood of our episodes so that we're not always having long moments of silence or I'm having to edit out a bunch of crying sounds like I did last week. You clicked the episode, though. You saw it. This week, we're going to do Lost National Parks. National parks that were and are no longer. Defunct in some capacity. Gone in mostly forgotten places. Or pieces of property that were once held by the National Park Service and are no longer held by the National Park Service. But the last one doesn't sound as mysterious. I mentioned in episode 10 covering cryptids with Bebo and Tamaje that I love national parks. And so this topic has been brewing in my mind for a long time. It's actually one of the topics that was on the list before I even had a name for the podcast. But of course, before we talk about what parks are no longer, we must first talk about how parks came to be in the first place. The word park comes from the pre-4th century West Germanic word parak, meaning an enclosed tract of land, but it more specifically meant the fence that was enclosing the land. The word also finds its origin in the medieval Latin paracus, meaning enclosure, and that word is the root for the 12th century Old French term park or an enclosed wood or heathland used as a game preserve. That is, of course, the closest to our definition and our pronunciation. The earliest parks in the sense that we think of them came from Persian kings. These areas were originally set aside for hunting, and then over time, as riding paths wore into the vegetation, the decorative possibilities and artificial shapes of gardens came into popularity. The parks of the post-Renaissance period varied widely in their variety. Extensive woods, large expansive rectangular gardens, raised galleries, and in some cases aviaries and cages for wild creatures to flex the hunting ability of the lords and aristocrats that owned them were commonplace. As time went on and industry progressed into the modern age, the need for open green spaces for access to fresh air and a break from the densely populated cities of the mid-19th century became of the utmost importance to doctors and everyday people. These types of parks were romantic in design, and their primary purpose was passive recreation walking and just taking in the air from more agreeable surroundings. So the world was changing and industry and corporations were taking over, so much so that people began to recognize that they needed to have a respite from air and water within cities that was heavily polluted. This was of course at the same time as the American expansion west across North America, so there were swaths of people not only wanting to escape the density of cities, but also folks who were out in Arizona marveling at a literal Delaware-sized hole in the ground which leads us directly into the 1860s and the Yosemite Valley of California. The history of people in Yosemite Valley goes back far beyond the 1860s. Ever since the Ice Age, glaciers receded from the valley, leaving space for plants, animals, and native peoples to thrive. This area has been populated. Gold was discovered in California in 1849, and the competition for land and resources that followed was often violent. The first non-native group to enter the valley was the Mariposa Battalion, which was formed to force natives onto reservations. The main native group that they were fighting with and trying to force out of the valley was the Awanichi tribe, which I want to mention is the only tribe that I could find as being recorded to live within the boundaries of the park. I also want to say here that the word Yosemite was originally thought to mean full-grown grizzly bear, 
but it actually comes from a rival tribe's term for the Awanichi people and means they are killers. So I don't know how we let this go on for this long, but like, can we please put some respect on the Awanichi people and stop calling their homeland something that was a term against them? Like, I don't have a better suggestion or anything, but like, what the hell? (laughs) Anyway, so in 1855, James Mason Hutchings, an entrepreneur, and Thomas Aries, an artist, visited the valley and began distributing writings and drawings that drew tourists and interest for the area from all across the country. Through the 1850s, privately owned and operated hotels, tour guides, lodges, and shops popped up throughout the valley, and some people placed their homestead stakes under the shadow of El Capitan in hopes that the swaths of tourists would sustain their businesses and their livelihood. One such settler was Galen Clark, who was the first person known to count and measure the trees within the Mariposa Grove of giant sequoias in 1857. There he built a simple lodge and roads towards the area. Clark was an early settler to the valley and became increasingly concerned with the protection of it from commercial interests, a concern that he began to share with Senator John Connis. A park bill was prepared with the General Land Office and the Interior Department. The bill was passed by both houses of the 38th U.S. Congress and signed by President Abraham Lincoln on June 30, 1864, thus creating the Yosemite Grant. Yes, the world's first piece of land set aside for preservation and public use by action of a federal government. Yep, not a national park, a state park for California that was set apart as such via a federal designation. You see, while the park was not a national one, it was the first in the world to be set apart by a national governing body and was a process that then greased the wheels for the birth of the first true national park, Yellowstone. And no, I'm not talking about that Kevin Costner show that everyone and their mom, or at least my mom, seems to be obsessed with. I'm talking about more than 3,400 square miles of lakes, canyons, rivers, mountains, geysers, and geothermal features that is like Disney World for the outdoors. Just like Yosemite, Yellowstone has long been populated by plants, animals, and native groups seeking its unique geothermal ecosystem. In 1805, the Lewis and Clark expedition entered what would become Montana and encountered Nez Pierce, Crow, and Shoshone tribes that described to them a region to the south that was unlike any landscape that they had ever seen. But they chose to not go investigate. The area that those native peoples were describing would become Yellowstone. Later on in 1806, John Coulter, a member of the expedition, left to join a group of fur traders and traveled through an area that would also later be part of the park. He observed at least one geothermal area near Tower Fall, and he described the area as a place of fire and brimstone, something that most people dismissed as delirium. Over the next 40 years, numerous mountain men and trappers reported boiling mud, steaming rivers, and petrified trees, but most of the reports were believed at the time to be a myth. An 1856 exploration of the area by a mountain man named Jim Bridger also reported on strange geological features, but Jim was known for tall tales, so not many people believed him. And if you've ever had the chance to visit Yellowstone or you've ever even seen a picture of the Grand Prismatic Hot Spring, then you probably understand why nobody believed these guys. To put it simply, the things that they were seeing are outrageous. And they make almost no sense if you don't understand the science behind them. I mean, if you didn't understand it and you walked up on it in the middle of the woods after wandering away from your friends 10 days ago, you'd probably shit your pants. You see, Yellowstone is centered over the Yellowstone Caldera, the largest supervolcano on the North American continent. The caldera is considered a dormant volcano, and it's erupted several times in the last two million years. Over half of the world's geysers and hydrothermal features are located in Yellowstone, fueled by the ongoing activity of this volcano. The American Civil War caused exploration of the area to be slowed until the late 1860s, and in 1869 and 1872, prominent expeditions helped pave the way for national recognition of the site. One member of those expeditions, Montana writer and lawyer Cornelius Hedges, proposed that the region should be set aside and protected as a new national park. 
1871, geologist Ferdinand V. Hayden set out with government sponsorship to explore the region. He compiled a comprehensive report, including photographs, paintings, and surveys of the area. The report helped to convince U.S. Congress to withdraw the region from public auction, and on March 1, 1872, President Ulysses S. Grant signed a dedication that created Yellowstone National Park. National parks have been hailed as America's best idea, and I'm going to have to agree. I mean, the simple yet groundbreaking concept that land and nature should be preserved from commercial interests for the sustainable use of all people for generations is one that hands down no doubt helped to shape the world as we know it now. I mean, there are more than 4,000 national parks around the world, and it all starts with Yellowstone. What followed after Yellowstone was a sort of national park boom, both in the United States and around the globe. In 1879, Australia established their first and the world's second national park, now known as the Royal National Park. Canada came in third in 1885 with its first national park and the first within the Rocky Mountains, Banff National Park. So parks were popping up here, there, and everywhere, and entrepreneurs and capitalists were suddenly aware that people were willing to travel and pay to see newer, unique natural features. There's somebody willing to pay you? You better bet that there's somebody willing to take the payment. And if America is ripe with two things, it's people who want to make money and interesting geological features. This is shown in the fact that the U.S. National Park Service oversees 424 national park sites that span more than 84 million acres and feature units in every state and every territory. Of the 424 park sites, only 130 have the shiny silver designation of National Monument, and only 63 carry the golden designation of National Park. And some of the 424 have been demoted from the League of Goldens to the League of Silver Places. Or some have even been given to states or to private holders because they were more work than they were worth to the National Park Service. But why were these units selected and who were they given to? So, of course, in order to understand why parks are decommissioned or lost, we need to understand why they are chosen in the first place. So, regardless of economic need or other factors, a new national park must meet criteria for national significance, sustainability, and feasibility. A unit is considered nationally significant if it meets all four of the following standards. 1. It's an outstanding example of a particular resource. 2. It possesses exceptional value or quality in illustrating or interpreting the natural or cultural themes of our nation's heritage. 3. It offers superlative opportunities for recreation for public use and enjoyment or for scientific study. And 4. It retains a high degree of integrity as a true, accurate, and relatively unspoiled example of a resource. The suitability of an area is determined by whether or not an area represents a natural or cultural theme or type of recreational resource that is not already adequately represented in the national park system or that is not comparably represented and protected for public enjoyment by another land-managing entity. A unit's feasibility is determined by establishing if an area's natural system or historic settings lend themselves to modification and traffic from visitors, as well as the ability for a location to be staffed at a reasonable cost. So if those are the factors that lead to a unit or location being chosen, do units that are decommissioned no longer meet those factors? Well, yes and no. There are plenty of decommissioned units that do meet all of the criteria on this list, and there are also presently operating units that don't meet these criteria and are still open to the public. James Ridenour, director of the Park Service from 1989 to 1993, said it this way, quote, I'm in complete agreement that the National Park Service has units that are unworthy of NPS status. That was my motive for coining the term thinning of the blood. Members of Congress trade votes to get their local favorite on the NPS teat, usually to attract tourists. Then they don't add money to the budget to run these units. So you have two things. One, you thin the quality of the system. And two, you thin the ability of the NPS to run the system, end quote. 
Basically, sometimes the political machine be doing what it does, and politicians establish parks just to say that they did so, meaning that the NPS occasionally has to trim off unfit units or locations that require a lot of oversight. Basically, there's no one to take care of them, so they go by the wayside. The decommissioning of parks tends to happen in cycles, with the number of unfit locations building up until one bold parks director or congressperson starts to take them out. There are currently no official calls for decommissioning any of the units of the park system, but they could be on the horizon, with nationwide staff shortages and budget restrictions forcing feasibility of locations into the front of every conversation. Overall, though, the mission of the National Park Service has stayed the same through time, to highlight the crown jewels and preserve the resources of our country, even if that means sometimes tripping back lesser units so that others shine. The ugly ducklings of national parks, if you will. So let's dig into those ugly ducklings and discover why they were selected and then removed from their prestigious rankings after this quick break. The first place we're going to be examining on our list is Lewis and Clark Caverns or Morrison Cave in Cardwell, Montana. Two men, Tom Williams and Burt Panel, first noticed the cave in 1892 when they noticed steam flowing from a natural vent in a rock, but later explored it with a group of hunters in 1898, bringing the system to public attention. Upon investigating, the group discovered passageways and voids under the surface of the earth that were filled with striking formations. In 1901, two men and a local miner named Dan Morrison developed the area for public use. The group enlarged the area near the entrance, built 2,000 wooden steps down into the cavern, and began offering guided tours of what they called Morrison Cave. These early tours of the cave were guided with ropes and torches and were very primitive. You already know I've got a few pictures up on Instagram from this time in the cave, even one with some nuns, so go check them out at KnowItAllPod on Insta. There was even this pillar that had fallen within the cave that was 12 feet in circumference. Mind you, it can take a stalactite a hundred years to grow one inch, so that pillar had to be at minimum tens of thousands of years old. Eventually, Dan Morrison began calling the system Limespur Cave and compared it to Kentucky's Mammoth Cave. As the location's popularity increased, the Northern Pacific Railway believed themselves to be the rightful owner of the land, eventually suing Morrison, winning, and then immediately turning the property over to the federal government as a land preserve. On May 11, 1908, President Theodore Roosevelt proclaimed Lewis and Clark Caverns National Monument as the United States' 15th National Monument. The land at this period was still unsurveyed, though, so it would be another three years before the declaration was finalized by President William Howard Taft. A 1930 description of the system said this, quote, The general appearance of the cave is that of a fissure in a steeply inclined bed of limestone. Its maximum measurements are 600 feet long and 400 feet deep but its numerous passages and rooms make it appear miles in extent rather than hundreds of feet. The walls of the cave are decorated with marvelous stalactite and the floor with corresponding stalagmites. Huge fragments of limestone, some as big as the ordinary house room, have fallen from the roof in many places. In places, the stalactites are found in terraces, a fringe of delicately carved forms, swelling at different levels gives the appearance of cascades. Many of the stalagmite columns encircled by horizontal rings with pendant stalactites are superbly beautiful. All manner of curious drip formations add to the wild beauty of the cave. Eight or ten chambers have been explored, the largest of these being 105 by 135 feet and 100 feet high. End quote. That was all, of course, if you could reach the cave. At this point, it was situated about five miles from the highway and a poor quality road led from the pavement to a trail that went up to the cave entrance, just a short 45-minute climb uphill after you left your vehicle. 
Once you reached the cave, you were still in for an adventure. 175 feet down the 2,000 steps and through small, tortuous passages that opened up into larger chambers and lead to ladders all throughout the cave system. All of which you were still doing without light and by this point without a guide. There were no rangers to guide visitors or to maintain the grounds at all. And by that 1930 report, the cave had actually been closed for years due to vandalism and safety concerns. Through the 1930s, the Civilian Conservation Corps helped to make the cave safer and more accessible. From 1935 to 1941, a team of more than 200 crew members along with geologists, architects, and engineers transformed the access to the cave. They repaired stairways, improved the tight passageways, opened new caverns, installed lighting, mapped the cave, and blasted out a 530-foot exit tunnel. Outside, they did away with the 45-minute hike and built a steep, winding 3.2-mile access road, granite bridges, an observation deck, shops, new trails, and three rustic-style buildings. During the construction and renovation to the grounds in 1935, Montana Governor Frank Cooney formally requested that the federal government turn the property over to the state of Montana for development as a state park, citing federal neglect and feelings that the park would do better as a state entity. On August 24, 1937, Congress abolished Lewis and Clark Caverns National Monument and transferred the property to the state of Montana. After the renovations were completed, the site was dedicated as Montana's first state park in 1941. Today, it seems that the state of Montana was right when they said they could do better. Presently, the park encompasses 3,000 acres, is open year-round, and features 10 miles of hiking trails. Guided tours of the cave are offered from May 1st to September 30th, and the two-hour tour requires one to walk two miles and traverse around 600 steps. Our next example is also a cavern from the early 20th century, but this time it's Shoshone Caverns or Spirit Mountain Cave in Cody, Wyoming. This cave was brought to public attention in January of 1909 by a man named Ned Frost. Frost reportedly located the cave while hunting with his retriever in pursuit of a bobcat. The bobcat escaped Frost's dog by darting down the entrance to the cave. Frost and the dog followed in hot pursuit, but soon Frost discovered that he didn't have enough matches to see anything beyond the great room at the system's entrance. What he did see, though, were hundreds of rooms linked together with tunnels and crystals that moved in a carnival of color running from red to purple, blue to yellow, and brown to orange and he wanted to share his find with others. The day after his discovery, Frost reported his finding of the cave, and a few days later, an exploration party was formed, a party that included Cody's founder and world-renowned showman, Buffalo Bill Cody. The party investigated the cave with ropes and lanterns, and Buffalo Bill and others in the groups thought that what they were seeing warranted federal designation. Just nine months later, it became a national monument with the Antiquities Act of 1909. The site was originally named Frost Cave, but the federal government thought that the name implied that the interior of the cave was cold in temperature. They suggested Crystal Cave as an alternative, but due to the system's proximity to Shoshone Canyon, a compromise landed on Shoshone Caverns as the name. The entrance to the cavern is located near the top of Cedar Mountain, overlooking the Shoshone River, and it's the type of cave entrance that you would read about in storybooks. Located among rugged cliffs, with pine trees dotted here and there and the occasional sharp outcropping of rock, the entrance itself is about 20 feet wide and 6 feet high, and upon entering the main cavern it follows a rather straight course, extending down into the mountain more than 4,000 feet, with some experts believing that it runs even further, possibly even all the way under the river and beyond. Like I mentioned earlier, the walls of the cavern are covered in crystals, mostly white but ranging in color. The cavern is overall lacking in stalactites and stalagmites, but it's got crystals, so why would you complain? The rooms of the system are not very large, with the largest being around 40 feet wide and about 8 feet tall. Most of the rooms extend past 50 feet in height, but are only slightly larger than arm's width apart. After its designation as a national monument, the National Park Service oversaw the cavern, along with the 210-acre site surrounding the entrance. 
The drive from the canyon floor to the entrance of the cave was difficult, even if it was short. In 1934, crews from the Civil Works Administration graded a narrow but passable automobile route up to the cave entrance. Over the years, National Park officials began viewing the cave as interesting, but not as compelling as other NPS-overseen caves. When locals in Cody and all over Wyoming began pushing for the return of the cave to local government, NPS did little to resist the efforts. On May 17, 1954, after many years of lobbying by Cody residents who claimed that the site could be better run by locals, the federal government turned the site over to the city of Cody. The system was renamed Spirit Mountain Caverns, and slowly over time it was realized by the locals why this location had become such small potatoes in the eyes of NPS. Local businessman Claude Brown leased the cave from the city and formed a corporation, selling stock to 300 shareholders. He planned to open the cave to tourists by the following summer, charging a fee of $1.50 each and selling snacks and souvenirs. It sounds idyllic, but it didn't happen. Work proved difficult and, well, expensive, and the official grand opening didn't come until September of 1957. Brown made improvements, paving the parking lot and stringing up electric lights inside of the cave. He also announced intentions for a $190,000 cable car up to the site, but was unable to raise the money. Brown continued to operate the site until the late 1960s when the cave was entirely abandoned. Another group signed a lease in 1972, but did little more beyond putting pen to paper. The Cody City Council allowed for the cavern and the site to be returned to federal ownership in September of 1977. After that, the location was incorporated into surrounding federal lands and is currently managed by the U.S. Bureau of Land Management. Experienced cavers may access the entrance to the cave, now sealed by a padlock gate, through application to the Cody Office of the Bureau of Land Management. Bureau officials say that the cave draws around 600 to 700 spelunkers per year. The story of our next lost location begins with the Flood Control Act of 1938, which authorized the construction of the Denison Dam on the Red River where it's joined by the Washita River and forms part of the Texas-Oklahoma border. The Big Dam and Reservoir Project was intended to provide flood control while also providing hydropower, water-based recreation opportunities, municipal water supplies, and other related benefits. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers were originally tasked with the project for the Denison Dam, and construction began in August of 1939 and was completed in 1944. Being constructed during World War II, the reservoir and dam were completed in part by German prisoners of war. They were from an expedition force that had been captured in northern Africa. According to the Geneva Convention, only non-war-related work can be performed by prisoners of war, like clearing trees and doing light construction. So projects performed by the prisoners included mortaring stones that lined drainage ditches, which are still present today, and completing a bathroom facility inside of the dam site. At the end of everything, the dam was just absolutely fucking massive, and so was the reservoir that it had created. Named for the nearby town of Denison, Texas, and birthplace of President Dwight D. Eisenhower, the dam contains nearly 19 million cubic yards of earth, and at the time it was finished, it was the largest dam of its type in the country. Under the terms of an agreement dated April 18, 1946, the Corps of Engineers transferred administrative responsibility for the reservoir to the National Park Service. The NPS designated the unit to be Lake Texoma Recreation Area, a sort of halfling between park and monument. A halfling that, in normal operation, boasts a surface area of nearly 90,000 acres and a shoreline that stretches over 550 miles. Lake Texoma is stocked with species of fish like crappie, bluegill, and catfish, but is best known for its striper bass. Texoma is one of few reservoirs where this species, native to the ocean, naturally reproduces. There are other things of public interest below the surface of the water, too, with oil rigs popping up along the water in an attempt to access the black gold under the floor of the lake. Think Gulf of Mexico and Galveston, but with less humidity and no rainforest cafe. So just sort of a bummer. 
another pretty big bummer is that in Lake Texoma, there's not just one, not just two, not even just three, but four towns buried under the water. I mean, of course there are, because you can't just drop thousands of acres of water onto where a river once was without probably landing on a town or two or four that had been plotted along that river. When construction for the dam was announced, most people saw what was on the horizon and packed up to move to new locations. Some towns even moved themselves entirely, rerouting streets and telephone wires and moving cemeteries outside of the reservoir's proposed boundary. The lake greatly changed the landscape of both northern Texas and southern Oklahoma, wiping once-bustling towns off the map entirely, unless you're a scuba fan. Apparently, you can scuba the ghost towns under Lake Texoma, and they're really, really cool. (laughs) But one of the four towns under the water of Lake Texoma is Hagerman, Texas. And if you're looking towards the north on the northwest section of the lake, that's where Hagerman originally was, where the water is all brown and kind of murky. You can see it on Google Maps. Check it out for yourself. Built along the Katy Railway and home to around 250 residents, Hagerman was once a busy switch town and was known for its easy access to less corrosive spring water for steam engines, all of which quickly ended when construction for the lake began. But by the time the lake was fully filled in 1944, Hagerman was gone. But it still showed up on a county highway map in 1970. Can't keep Hagerman down. Another Texas town, Cedar Mills, was so popular before being washed away that it had a racetrack and a hotel, and once boasted a population of more than 500. All that's left of Cedar Mills now, though, are whispers on the banks of Lake Texoma that only reveal themselves when the water levels get low. Cedar Mills and Hagerman both had populations that left before the water rose and the reservoir took control of the land, but Woodville, Oklahoma didn't exactly have the same experience. Sometimes called the first town in Indian Territory, Woodville was reported to have more than 360 residents in 1944 when the lake finished filling, and where they all went isn't entirely clear. There is a new Woodville that was established, but it never reached the levels of its predecessor and the remains of the town can be seen along the beach of Lake Texoma if the conditions are right. When lake levels are low and the water recedes, the foundation of the old school building and headstones from the old cemetery come out to remind us of the past. So the Corps of Engineers handed control of the lake over to the MPS in 1946, and by 1949, the Park Service decided that managing reservoirs wasn't really its jam and gave Lake Texoma back to the Corps of Engineers, which in my opinion isn't really a gift so much as it is a chore. It reminds me of all those commercials they put out during holiday season of spouses and partners surprising their other half with a car as a gift. Like, that's not a gift. You just gave me a higher car payment and insurance. Like, the NPS is just giving their headache back to the Corps of Engineers. But, you know, I don't really know what the Corps of Engineers does aside from managing reservoirs and dams. So this is their jam. So they'll probably be good at it. You know what? Never mind. I support the decision. Lake Texoma had been a national park for a little more than three years, and it really didn't change that much while it was under NPS administration. Today, though, Lake Texoma and the Denison Dam still fill their intended purposes. They prevent floods and flood damage, the hydropower turbines produce 250,000 kilowatt hours of electricity a year, the reservoir provides water storage for local communities through five permanent contracts, and there are many recreational-based benefits. Lake Texoma hosts around 6 million recreational visits each year has two national wildlife refuges along its shores, and a state park in Texas, a state park in Oklahoma, 54 Corps of Engineers managed parks, more than a dozen resorts, a dozen marinas, golf courses, and 80,000 acres of public hunting lands, and numerous public and private campgrounds. Where Lake Texoma grew into prosperity after the NPS stopped managing it, our next example of a lost park did not have the same experience. In 1791, President George Washington visited Charleston, South Carolina, and saw a little island in the harbor, thought that it held strategic promise based off of its location, and ordered that a fort be built there. The people of Charleston then set out to do exactly that, raising money and a fort on the small island called Chutes Folly. 
the people of Charleston decided that the fort would be named Fort Pinckney in honor of Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, a local planter, Revolutionary War general, and a delegate to the Constitutional Convention. By 1804, a crude log fort had been completed on Chute's Folly, and it was almost immediately destroyed by a hurricane. It was then replaced by a brick fort completed in 1810. The new fort was dubbed Castle Pinckney because of its castle-like design and looming walls that featured multiple tiers of enclosed and protected gun positions. By the War of 1812, Castle Pinckney was already slipping into obscurity, and it was demoted to a secondary line of defense in 1826. The following year, the construction of Fort Sumter, a much larger and fortified location, began at the entrance to the harbor. By the late 1820s, it was clear that Castle Pinckney would need to get used to being overshadowed by its bigger and better neighbor. There was a small number of troops stationed at Castle Pinckney until 1836, but after that it remained almost entirely abandoned until 1860, due to the rumblings of the American Civil War in South Carolina. Over this period, little was done to maintain the fort. A lighthouse was added in 1855, and the castle served as the city arsenal. The fort was approaching 50 years old, but the action of Castle Pinckney was just beginning. On December 20, 1860, South Carolina seceded from the Union. Seven days later, a small group from the South Carolina militia stormed Castle Pinckney. They used ladders to climb up and over the parapet and then captured the few Union troops along with women, children, and laborers on the island. Not a single shot was fired by either side, but this was the first seizure of federal property by a southern state following the Declaration of Secession. This was an attempted act of war. If the message wasn't received and disseminated by the small group at Castle Pinckney, it certainly was less than four months later when Confederate troops opened fire on Fort Sumter and the Civil War was officially underway. By September of 1861, Castle Pinckney was being used as a makeshift prison for 154 Union soldiers captured at the Battle of Bull Run, the first major land battle of the Civil War. Castle Pinckney was heavily attacked throughout the Civil War, but remained under Confederate control until Charleston fell late in the war. Whether the fort's guns were ever fired during battle remains unclear. Union troops regained control of the fort on February 18, 1865. When the war ended, it wasn't entirely obvious what the federal government planned to do with Castle Pinckney beyond it serving as a lighthouse and a depot. The guns were left in place and the fort was left to decay. By 1809, the deterioration was so advanced that the fort was sealed, filled in with sand, and prepared to be used as a lighthouse foundation. There was a proposal for the site to be used as a nursing home for Union veterans in 1897, but nothing came from the idea. By 1917, the lighthouse was abandoned, with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers using the island as a base for harbor improvements. After a full seven years abandoned, President Woodrow Wilson proclaimed Castle Pinckney to be a national monument on October 15, 1924. The monument was placed under the administration of the War Department, but in June of 1933, it was transferred to the National Park Service. Lacking funding and just general incentive, the NPS made no plans to preserve or develop the property for public visitation. In fact, there were no visits to the island by the public during this time. The National Park Service just sort of took control and then held on to the property, doing basically nothing with it. By 1936, though, the NPS was actively trying to sell the property, and they were unsuccessful. In 1954, an act of Congress abolished Castle Pinckney National Monument. When the National Monument was abolished, the deed to the castle was transferred from the National Park Service back to the Corps of Engineers. The Corps planned to use the fort as a depot, but it was rarely used, and less than a year after gaining control of the fort, the Corps of Engineers decided that they didn't want Castle Pinckney anymore either. In 1957, the South Carolina State Ports Authority purchased Schutz Folly and Castle Pinckney. The Port Authority wanted to use the island as a dumping area for material pulled from the harbor and the Cooper River. They had no interest in Castle Pinckney whatsoever. It just so happened to be there. A 1967 fire destroyed all the wooden buildings on the island and inside of the castle. The Port Authority still had no interest in the island and let the ruins just lay out in the South Carolina elements. Of course, abandoned shit is cool, so people were trying to get onto the island all the time. 
The port authority placed signs all over the island, and visiting was strictly prohibited. The castle was most definitely off-limits. In 2011, the Port Authority sold Castle Pinckney and Shoots Folly to the Sons of Confederate Veterans for $10. A whopping $10. Castle Pinckney Historical Preservation was founded in Charleston two years later. The organization's goal was to raise funds for the preservation of the fort, and while their efforts continue today, Castle Pinckney is still off-limits to the public and no preservation work has been completed. The most updates that happen on the island are members of the Sons of Confederate Veterans visiting every once in a while to change out the flag on the pole. Every month or so, a member rides a skiff to the castle and swaps it out. Sometimes it will be an Irish flag in honor of St. Patrick's Day, the Italian flag for Columbus Day, the state flag for Carolina Day, the Stars and Stripes for the 4th of July, but most of the time, the group raises a Confederate flag of some sort. They most often choose a more obscure flag from the Confederacy, like the South Carolina flag of secession or the Citadel's battle flag. The flag that you're thinking of whenever you think of the Confederate flag is actually the battle flag of the Army of North Virginia. And while I can't say it's never been flown at Castle Pinckney, I can say that I couldn't find any documentation to prove that it had. The crumbling fort and waving Confederate flags can still be seen from a distance by taking a charter boat tour of the harbor or walking through Waterfront Park. Though it's only a matter of time until the small island is reclaimed both by brown pelicans and the waters of the Charleston Harbor. For our last example, we're going to travel from South Carolina all the way to the opposite corner of the country to Ketchikan, Alaska in the Old Kassan Village. Old Kassan National Monument was proclaimed in 1916 to preserve a 38-acre site containing the ruins and totems of an abandoned Haida Indian village. The push for the abandoned village to be preserved as a national park began when a June 1913 Pacific Coast Steamship Company steamer, the SS Spokane, was headed north on an excursion cruise. After the ship entered Alaskan waters, it veered into the scow arm, just west of Ketchikan, and came upon the abandoned village. The company's chief lecturer, Mary Hart, and 23 other club members were so impressed by the community houses, totem poles, and grave houses that they thought the site needed to be preserved. The tourists on the SS Spokane may not have been aware of it, but the example left in Old Kassan Village was hardly unique or isolated. The 50 years before 1914 had seen a massive influx of non-natives to Alaska, and few native groups escaped that influx. Between the arrival of missionaries, the development of mines, salteries, and canneries, and the establishment of towns intended to attract natives out of their traditional villages, more than 25 villages were either primarily or totally abandoned within this area. At least 10 of these sites belonged to the Haida, with their sites being more popular amongst tourists due to their use of totem poles, community houses, and other distinctive design features. I should also mention that the tourists aboard the SS Spokane were also far from an anomaly. By 1913, tourism to Alaska was a well-established industry, with the opportunity to see natives, witness their lifestyle, and buy their goods being the key experience for any excursion. But before the establishment of the tourism industry and the reach of colonization came through Old Kassan, the Haida Nation was known for their aggressiveness and ferocity and controlled a good portion of the Pacific Northwest coast. The Old Kassan village was inhabited by the Taslanis clan, or the Raven clan, and ravens can be seen in some of the art and architecture that was used within the village. The clan at Old Kassan was led by a succession of chiefs, including one named Chief Scowl, who ruled for at least 20 years before his death in 1882. Chief Scowl despised whites and particularly hated the missionaries that were sent to his village, and until his dying day, he urged his people to safeguard their native cultures from foreign intrusion. Chief Scowl occupied two houses within the village while he was in power. The second of his homes was unusually large and was called the Navak. Navak was a very lively place, and Chief Scowl was said to have hosted many frequent celebrations there. Like I mentioned, Haida villages are known for totem poles, and Old Kassan is no exception to this. 
The variety and size of poles in Old Kassan made up a very nice collection, and in front of Navag, there was even a cluster of poles that had one totem placed by Scowl during his time as chief. Chief Scowl's descendants continued to live in the village and in Navag until the entire village decamped between 1902 and 1904, headed for a new settlement on the Kassan Bay that they called New Kassan. Their reasoning for this was simple. A salmon packing plant had recently opened up in that area, and people needed to go where jobs were. Between Mary Hart and other tourists aboard the SS Spokane seeing the village in 1913 and its 1916 designation as a national monument, something tragic occurred. In 1915, a fire swept through the abandoned village and burned many of the vacant houses, and destroyed or severely damaged many of the totems that had been left behind. Navak was burned almost completely to the ground, and the totem pole that had been erected by Chief Scowl was damaged beyond repair. The Forest Service recognized the cultural significance of the village and believed that Navag should be restored, so they gave the final push towards National Monument status. It was declared as such on October 25, 1916, but actually restoring the unit would be much harder than getting it into the hands of the National Park Service. You see, no one from the Alaska branch of the Forest Service had told Washington about the fire. And when officials did find out about it, they declared that they would not be pushing for the proposed restoration. It simply wasn't worth it. Restoration was deemed too inconvenient and too expensive. Plus, a 1921 inspection of the site revealed that between exposure to elements, fire, and vandalism, there wasn't much left to restore anyway. In 1938, the National Park Service negotiated with key Kassan Haida descendants and arranged to move specified totems from Old Kassan to New Kassan. The terms of the agreement also prohibited moving any of the totem poles to Ketchikan. The totem poles had to remain on Haida property. Five poles were transferred and renovated. They were the 40-foot flying groundhog pole, the 50-foot scowl pole, a totem known as the Spencer pole, the Hau pole, and a six-foot tall sitting bear grave marker. Three copies of historic totems were also created and then placed in New Kassan, and all eight of the totems can still be seen there. But what happened to Old Kassan? Well, after all of its principal cultural features were removed, the village was no longer considered a monument-quality site. The remote location of the site also proved to impact its ability to be preserved and visited. On July 26, 1955, Congress abolished Old Kassan National Monument and transferred the property back to the U.S. Forest Service. The Forest Service still oversees it today as part of the 17-million-acre Tongass National Forest. Chief Scowl's totem pole survived high tides, winds, and fire for nearly a century and finally fell over in 1980. Now all that remains of the big house are a few charred posts. The history and the memory of Old Kassan only exists in photographs and stories passed down by generations. So, like I said, some of the places we've talked about today could still be national parks. And if their infrastructure had been developed earlier, maybe they still would be, such as Lewis and Clark Caverns. But other places, like Old Kassan or Castle Pinckney, are just too lost to time and to the elements for us to preserve at this point. Which is, of course, tragic, but is part of history. The world keeps turning, we keep developing, and things are forgotten. It is interesting to think about, though, you know, what places exist out there that should be national parks or national monuments, and what places are managed by the National Park Service that don't need to be or are a waste of time, so to speak. I mean, I remember whenever I was, I think, in fifth grade, the Gateway Arch in Missouri was in the process of becoming a national park. And so my family visited the Gateway Arch for 4th of July. They had this whole festival underneath of the arch. And part of the festival was you could submit a design for what the national park should look like. 
And I, in all of my like 10, 11 year old wisdom, I was like, oh my God, I know exactly how this should look. I drew out this grand plan. It had statues near the river. If you've ever been to the Gateway Arch, you're going to understand what I'm kind of talking about. If you haven't, then just bear with me. Imagine a giant metal thing, archway. There's no better way to describe it. A giant metal archway on top of a football field that faces a river. Okay? Okay. So closest to the river, I had all these statues of Lewis and Clark, of Thomas Hart Benton, of other people from Missouri history like Henry Clay and Daniel Boone, and all these people. I had this grand vision for these beautiful statues down by the riverfront, a grassy lawn underneath of the archway so that people could relax and take in the beauty of the river in front of them as well as the statues you know little like things all around little infographics for people to read and learn about what they're looking at Missouri trees all throughout the park labeled so people can know what trees are native to Missouri because there's like over 200 I think that are native to Missouri and then like a little I also had in my mind like a little um playground to the back opposite of where the statues were so you know kids could enjoy themselves and you know, involve themselves with the history, learn a little bit about, you know, the construction process for the arch. I was so proud of it. I spent like 45 minutes drawing this. I mean, I obviously was proud of it. I am 25 years old and I still remember every detail, but they didn't choose it. And I'm salty. I'm mad because what they did choose is stupid. It's just a grassy field. It's just open. It's just nothing. How is that a park? I am proud to say though that Missouri does have a national park though. Big ups to Missouri. We love you. Like I said in the Women of the American West episode, uh, the Gateway Arch makes me cry. So don't know why I'm acting like I'm that angry at it because I obviously am not. Be sure if you're listening on Spotify to answer this week's poll. I'm going to throw up, uh, you know, a question of if you think any places should become national parks that aren't national parks. And who knows? Maybe we'll throw together a know-it-all petition and, you know, make the National Park Service do our bidding because maybe we're that powerful and you know you never know until you try so why not but otherwise that's going to be where I cut it off this week guys thank you so much for joining me please be sure to follow the pod on whatever platform you're listening on we recently expanded to Google and Amazon podcasts so you know if you're not subscribed on there go ahead and do so I hope you'll join me next week, though, in the pursuit to know a little bit about everything. Please like the episode, send it to a friend, comment on the Instagram posts, and most of all, stay safe out there, guys. Until next time, thanks.